guys. I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And this is No Limits, a Mitrap podcast. How you doing today, Mike? I'm good. It was the last day of school today, so <laughs> Woo! a couple of celebrations with my classes. You know, good good to say goodbye to the students for the summer, but um, hopefully some time now for some other projects around the house. A little lighter schedule. How about yourself? Nice. Yeah, I've I've had a few interviews the past couple of days, past couple of weeks, um, for my next step in life, and so I now have some time to focus more on this. And hopefully, I'm going to be able to go back to work in the near future. I've been shut down outside of lab for going on three months now. Wow. Um, a sci- a scientist not in his lab is like Mitch Rapp. I don't know, not in the Middle East or, uh, <laughs> you know, without a silencer on his Beretta. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, without my pipettes, I feel like Mitch Rapp without his Beretta. Yeah, but no, I'm going to be going back soon, which is good news. So, yeah, life is good. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, for our Twitter roundup, we have a couple of great shout outs, including an international shout out deep at at Books Lover Deep, D-E-E-P. He's been really active on Twitter, engaging with fans, sharing the podcast. He even said Transfer of Power was one of uh, the first books that made him a lifelong fan of military and political thrillers. So shout out to Deep in India. Our stats even show a couple of international downloads while we're on it. I mean, it's probably VPN. Wow. Well, wow. I'd imagine people with a VPN network, you know, but uh, pretty cool. We see Canada, Brazil, the UK, Australia. Philippines and, and a listener in Thailand come up. So pretty cool. Pretty cool. I, I hope that's, that's awesome. True. That's really yeah. awesome. I mean, imagine if one of them reaches out on Twitter, that'd be kind of cool to hear. We got to get some of these, uh, these fans on here sometime. Maybe we can, or do a ask, you know, ask some questions. We have to bring the listeners in down the road, you know, maybe even part of our bonus content could be uh, fan highlights, fan interviews. Cause we got a lot of great people out there who are fans of these books, just like us. Uh, our our listeners have also chimed in with their favorite book covers. So part of our review, boom, of baby, power, yeah, we're going to review the the Twitter thread. Pretty awesome. A lot of you chiming in, telling us which cover you heated debate between me and you, right, Mike? Well, we're gonna we're gonna see what who, who the listeners agreed with. So uh, okay. I might have to give this one to you, but but we'll get there. We'll get there. Are you going to talk about the sticker giveaway? Oh yeah. So we're going to pick. Two winners for our sticker giveaway. We got No Limits Mitch Rat Pod custom three by three stickers. We'll put them out in the mail for two winners. One person who picked Chris's favorite cover and one person who picked my favorite cover on Twitter. We'll pick you randomly. That's awesome. All right. So so what other content are we covering today, Chris? So in today's episode, we're gonna be covering sort of our more in-depth analysis of the book as a whole. Uh what what we thought of Transfer of Power as a whole. And so here we're going to be talking about the themes that we gathered from the books, you know, highlight some of our favorite, you know, major or minor characters, as well as answering some questions that I came up with about the book. And we're going to finish with our zero sum game. So just to start it out, I I wanted to bring up some of these themes that I was sort of thinking about. That is kind of addressed in this book. And the first one is this idea of what is terrorism and the idea of moral relativism. And, and what I mean by that, terrorism can be explained on 
many different levels. You know, the definition of it is sort of fluid. And depending on who is defining it, they, they could have a different definition. I think you're right. I mean, originally the term was pretty black and white, I would say. In any capacity, using force or violence to achieve a, a political end or political change. And we've kind of come to use the word for anybody endorsing violence, where originally the way I, I studied it more with an academic approach was it's not just you're using violence, you're using violence to advocate political change of some sort. And so I think you're right. It, it does have a fluid, more open definition, and that changes with sensitivities over time. Right. And I, I just think um, one thing that's sort of brought into context within in this book is this idea of sort of terrorism in sort of the eyes of the beholder. So you have on one side Rafik Aziz and his plot and, and what he wants to gain. And then you have Mitch Rapp and the, the counterterrorism institutions and, and their gain. And sort of as like a tertiary unit, you have the politicians and, and their gain. And they're each sort of trying to vie for their own, their own needs, their, their own gains. And they're going to do whatever it takes to have themselves succeed. And so that, that's what I was trying to get at with this idea of moral relativism in, in, in the sense that one could think something is right based on what they believe. And that's something that sort of started to be broached in, in, this, in this novel. Well, that is one of the weaknesses, if you will, that Aziz plays off of, uh, understanding the Americans will ha will have that moral relativistic sense, and he knew media outlets and the will of the people at large would understand his compassionate plea for policy changes. Because on the other end, my people have suffered. Uh, I think deep down, he's just scum, right? He's he, he, oh yeah, definitely. He doesn't definitely. really care about anybody except for his achieving his own ends and. Um, advancing what they would see as the jihad, but he knew this idea of playing that that compassion card with the American people of, you know, the Arabs have suffered for so long under your hands. America's the big bad imperialist. He knew that would go over well with a a, a large portion of the American population, even though the argument is straight up bogus. Could a terrorist who's doing these things, going to these extremes, play that card? Could a terrorist whose whole life has been killing innocent people play that compassion card? And so, yeah, American policy has greatly affected and disturbed um, many communities, often innocent communities throughout regions, including South Asia and the Middle East. But what's bogus to me is the lead terrorist who was the cause of a lot of this getting worse and worse is trying to now say, can't you just understand where I'm coming from? Right. And that's bogus. And one of the things I wanted to bring up with you was this idea of, <clears throat> and it might be a common theme that, that happens with military and with these sort of operations, but the sacrificing the few to save the many. And it's something that, you know, I think General Flood and, and some of the other military advisors, they would argue that we can't give in to these terrorists because if we give in to that, you know, that, that'll cause downstream effects however like someone like baxter you know even if his motives are pretty much you know not genuine he wants to save these you know 50 100 hostages whatever what are your thoughts on saving the few versus saving the many yeah i think that comes up in the book of 
is one person's life worth it? I think that's played with when it's the president, especially with life. the president, right? When yeah. it's a, when it's the president in the bunker, and I think just personally, of course, one life is always worth it. You know, whatever it takes, right? That that life is is precious. Yeah. But what happens in the real world when you do have authority to see the full picture, to look at all the intelligence, and say, are these hostages? worth it is this one man in a bunker worth it worth changing an entire century or half century of foreign policy that was trying to advance peace on a grander scale or that was aimed towards achieving objectives that for the long term would prevent war you know that would allow for stabilization in the region because if our one person in a bunker or our 100 hostages are worth it what about the thousands of people who would be affected by any lasting effects of a policy breakdown? Exactly. Uh, all I know is I, I, I don't know. That, that's some sort of position I would never I, – I don't know what I would do. You know, I would obviously use all my intelligence, but definitely not a position that I, I envy these people that – you know, this is just a book, but there are people in real-life situations that have to make those decisions, and I don't envy them at all. Well, yeah. Now let's get to rap. Rap is hiding out watching this rape about to take place. And he's being told or he knows that he could jeopardize the mission. And that mission could lead to all of the hostages dying. And that that jeopardizing the mission could set the terrorists off to launch a wave of attacks if their demands are not met. Yet Rap takes this down to such a basic level of, I can do something. I could prevent this. I have to do it. You know, turning off that radio and saying... I'm going to drown out the voices who are quite perhaps the voices of reason telling right. me don't jeopardize the mission. There's hundreds and thousands of lives at stake. He is the one who's going to drown that out and say, the only voice that matters is what I can do right here. Yep. And uh, there's always that third way, right? He's able to save her and he's smart enough to cover it up to make it look like Anna did it so that the terrorists don't realize that there's a, another person at play here. Right. And so this is all sort of, compartmentalized in, in the second theme that I wanted to bring up and the idea that in a lot of these novels and, and even in society, compassion is seen as a weakness. And I, I think rap does a good job of sort of fighting against that in, in that moment where yes, he has compassion for Anna and that's the right thing to do. And yes, you know, that decision may have jeopardized the mission, but you know, it was the right thing to do and that's all that matters. Or maybe more important than compassion as the weakness, indecision as the weakness, right? We always look at it as a matter of right or wrong, or do you do the sensitive thing or not? But for rap, I think, and for most people who are on the ground, I think it's more, do you take action or not? And do you stick to it, right? If you go halfway into it and they say, eh, maybe this isn't right, and then you turn around. Or you're leaning one way, and then you say, you know what, maybe I should stop. That's what in the end is going to have more negative ripple effects. Right. And so the, the third topic, that I think sort of is throughout the entire book and even the, the title of the book, it's, is this idea of jurisdiction and the transferring of power. And not only do we have transfer of power in the sense of the presidency, but throughout the novel, I think we have the vying and, and jockeying of power between different players. As we mentioned in our previous episode, in those Pentagon meetings, you have the politicians, you have the CIA, the intelligence community, you have the military, you have RAP, who's a part of the CIA, but, you know, thinks a little bit differently. You have all of these factions that are vying for jurisdiction. And then internally within each of the subunits, you have HRT, the 
the FBI hostage rescue. You have the the Delta Boys. You have the Navy SEALs. They all want to be the ones to perform the the rescue. And you have these politicians who are thinking on sort of a global level, and they're also thinking in terms of a political level, what's going to happen. You have the military who are like, you know, they have the chain of command that they have to abide by and, and how we're going to think about this tactically. You have the CIA, they're going to get information. And how can we use this to our best advantage to get information? And then even internally within the military, you're going to have these different factions. You know, I'm good at this. I'm good at that. I'm good at this. I, I need to, to be a part of that. I, I just really enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed that too. And I think Vince masterfully breaks it down, like you said at the end, to the skill sets. And really shows that management and leadership is not going to be someone who just willy-nilly gets a piece of information, responds, and makes a judgment call. But real management is going to be analyzing the skill sets of the different pieces and the different assets and placing them where necessary. You know, when they put uh, Delta in the air and they put seals on um, going after the terrorists if they escape. And the explosions, they're in charge of the explosions. Yeah, they even are brought in that the the two steels are going through the duct, the one of who does get shot by Aziz. The reason they were going in was to assist Rap in disarming the bombs because they were the demolition specialists. Uh, Once he was able to describe the tripwires that he saw and the types of explosives that he saw. One other thing about the, the chain of command, if you will, the decision to keep Roach and the FBI... Out of the and loop. McMahon out of the loop. How at first I was wondering what Stansfield was doing because we've seen such a great collaboration, even going back to term limits. Oh, great. There was much, much more collaboration yeah. in that book than this book. Yeah, but what we see is the reason Stansfield is skirting that collaboration with the FBI because he knows McMahon is so good at his job. He'll have a perfect hostage uh, rescue strategy set up and he'll be willing to do it at any point. But Stansfield knows rap on the inside is seeing these bombs hardwired and so he couldn't fully let mcmahon in because mcmahon would have wanted to go anyway and say we'd have to save the hostages we have to save the president uh they would have stuck to fbi protocols because they are good soldiers in that regard but stansfield had to delicately decide when do we let him into the loop when do we tell him we have an asset on the inside and we should be a little patient versus knowing how that would tick off the fbi that the cia is trying to maybe undercut them and be the ones to get in and save the day. And so the final thing to just to wrap up this, this theme section was this idea of multiple uh, forms of power. And so you could have physical power, but I also saw in the book there there's intellectual power in, in the sense of Irene Kennedy and the thinking on the feet of Mitch Rapp that is shown throughout the novel, as well as, you know, you have milk, you have Marcus Dumont, you, you have all these players that, that show their intellectual prowess. And then finally, you know, this, I was searching for a third form of power and I saw it a little bit with the uh, reporter who have this, this sexual power and, and this pull over uh, the King character where, you know, she's able to get what she wants using her sexuality. Well, now you can foil that with rap and how he is so hesitant to open up to Anna at first. You know, I I got to be honest, I thought this trope of you're just a journalist, I'm not going to say anything in front of you. Was yeah, you really a had a problem with this. It was, it was to me a little overplayed where he was Mitch Cruz, even to the highest levels of the command structure. That's how secret the Orion team was. So I could see why he's so sensitive to journalists and, and personally, he just you know doesn't want to get screwed over by a journalist. 
I thought it was a little too heavy in the writing. I thought it was brought up just a tad bit too often. And I thought it was unrealistic where Anna, the first time Rap approaches her and says, hey, there's some sensitive information here. She's kind of off put. And even though she just had her life saved, she's kind of like, you can't tell me not to write my story. I, I thought that was out of character for, for where she was at that moment. At that moment, she was just saved. I'll do anything for you. You know, I owe my life to you. She was rattled and shocked, yet she snaps into journalist mode to go, I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to, I'm going to report this. I'm going to write it up. Let me know what the radios are saying. Don't, you know, cut me out. I'm like, I mean, maybe if she's a good journalist, it's so ingrained in her. Yeah. Who she is. Maybe she's just as good as what rap does in the moment. She's just as good as sticking to her journalistic uh, instincts, but it just bugged me a little bit. I agree with that. I do think that they played, he played up on it a little too much. The one counter argument I would have to it is that I think it's mainly a foreshadowing tool to set up the conflict between him and rap, her and rap, sorry, in the future where she is this journalist who has this duty. He is this secret agent man and he has this duty. It has to be secret. And, and I think it was just a foreshadow that sort of tension between the two that will end up being exploited more in future novels i think i agree i think it's an important foreshadowing device just wonder if it was too upfront as a way to introduce that uh that concept or that that tension that's going to run through yeah. the their relationship now i just wanted to ask you who are you who are your favorite characters from this novel so i mean outside of rap right um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess if, if we if yeah. we exclude the, the you know Stansfield, Kennedy, and Rab, who are pretty consistent, obviously those are the big three. You know, who are the, out of let's do out of the minor characters. So it's it's going to sound strange, but I freaking loved Rafik Aziz. I mean, obviously, I didn't love what he was, but I loved who he was as a written character. Right. Um, in terms of a, a villain in a story, very good villain. Per almost perfect villain. I thought the way his character was written impressed me so much. Not that I liked what he was doing or, sure. or, or his persona, but I, I loved how he was written as a character. The amount of preparation that went into this, the amount of backstory you picked up on without even knowing rap, you knew that Aziz was his his counterpart and Aziz knew America and Americans better. He knew FBI protocols. He knew the attorney general's strategy and academia and decision making better than she knew it herself. He knew American government and, and just the different levels of jurisdiction like we were talking about. He he was always three steps ahead. The only one he wasn't ahead of was Stansfield. Do you remember that phone call right. with Stansfield? I mean, Aziz had bested everybody on the phone. He kind of cornered McMahon. McMahon yep. was, was obviously doing what all he could. He, he didn't even know he, like they were in there, so that's all he could do. Yeah. I mean, Aziz demolished Tutwiler. Oh, yeah. And the one person when Aziz tried calling Stansfield, Stansfield got him. It was like yeah. Aziz just expected Stansfield to say, what do you want? You know, tell us your demands. You know, just give us more time. And there's Stansfield going, I don't care what you do. I don't care about the hostages. You know, I'm the, I'm the director of the CIA. I really don't care about them. And it was the one time Aziz was put off and he turned the tables on him. And I, and I just thought, what a great character Aziz was. And then what a great mechanism for Flynn to find 
and it had to be Stansfield, the one person who could uh, make Aziz backtrack a little. Right. Who's your hero or who is your favorite character? I would have to say it's, it's tied between, if you know, we can't pick the big three. It's tied between either President Hayes or Milt Adams. I really liked Hayes. I thought he was, you know, very strong. He showed some very strong leadership, very different president than we saw in, in the previous book. I liked his decision making and I really liked how Flynn sort of established him as this character. And we talked a little bit about it in the, in the, the last podcast. And then I, Mel Adams was just this nice little, I don't know, sidekick that Mitch could have. And I feel like there's times in the books where Mitch, uh, Vince will introduce characters that typically only stay for one book, maybe two. Um, but they, they act as sort of these little sidekicks for, for rap. And in this case it was Milt. And I, I just, I appreciated him, his knowledge, his, his intelligence, his, you know, being able to drop down and give us 25 to show he, he was still had it. Uh, I really enjoyed that. And he literally had the key, which, yeah, once again, another little plot device that give or take, I don't know if I'm a big fan of, but. Yeah, um, uh, Raph even mentions, like, <laughs> you're going to tell me that the legend just walk out with that. And he's like, I run the place. Uh, and then they just, like, he laughs it off. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like he literally is the holder of the key to the White House. I'm like, okay. But um, yeah, I guess it works. I guess it works. Uh, you know, someone who hasn't come up, he is a minor player, but Warch, Jack Warch. Right. We have get him in the previous book, too. Exactly. Yeah. We, we haven't talked about it, but how awesome were the scenes inside of the bunker where Warch just wouldn't turn off his Secret Service persona? Right inside the bunker, he's managing everything. You know, how do we save the batteries on the radio and the cell phone in case our connection comes back? He set routines and a schedule for the officers on duty in the bunker with them. Who's sleeping? Who's on watch? He even—I thought this was one. It was one of the smallest yet most badass decisions in the book. When he realizes there's nothing left to do, they're going to drill in. It's a matter of time. They'll open the door. And he deduces that Baxter wasn't sending in the FBI. He's like, if it was going to happen, it's going to happen now. I know where they're at in the stages of hostage negotiation. And when it doesn't happen, Warch says, we got to change the game. The same way Stansfield and Kennedy are always finding ways to change the game, change the narrative, think outside the box. Warch goes, we open the door from the inside. Yeah, let's let's run in. Let's let's while they're not thinking we're going to do that. Let's do that. I, I love that decision. And he ultimately get stopped at the very last second but that was a that was a badass move remember when we were talking in the last episode about the ending feeling a little rushed i thought that was one of those things i got so excited when warch said we're busting out of here guns blazing and i was like i want it to happen i i want to see that happen and it was right when he thought of that that everything else started happening and the seals landed on the roof and i was just like Darn, that was one of those things I was like, mm. that would have been cool. The flesh that would have been super cool. I mean, they only had the one locksmith guy who was who was cracking the lock. They had another guy, I think, somewhere out in the basement. They could have pulled that off. I, I think they could have pulled it off, but they, the seals pulled it off. A group of what? Four seals pulled it off. I mean, I'm pretty sure the Secret Service agents know the building even better than them, right? Yeah. So this is an interesting question. Who do you think is the ultimate villain? of transfer of power is it Rafik Aziz is it Vice President Baxter who who do you think it is they're both terrible okay I mean 
I, I think that's what I like about Vince is he gives us the main character who's your obvious, everybody knows this person as the villain. Look, I'm writing a story. I obviously have a villain. But then more importantly, he gives you what I'm pretty sure he referred to as the secondary villains, which are often the corrupt politicians. Dallas King is just such a scumbag. He's all about himself. He's all about his own image. He's kind of like a Stu Garrett in Term Limits. Very similar to Stu Garrett. You remember with Term Limits, we said, you know, Flynn might have been kind of throwing paint at the wall, see what sticks, who he's going to hold on to. He obviously held on to a whole slew of characters. But even the characters he didn't hold on to still come back. President Stevens is so similar to... Right. Back, the the idea of that character comes mm-hmm. back. Yeah, Stu Garrett, so similar to a Dallas King. I feel like he really tested out not so much characters he wanted to play with, but personas that he wanted right. to play with. And right. um, he, he tweaked it even more in this book. And so who uh, to follow that one up, who's our ultimate hero? I mean, it's got, it's got to be wrapped, but I think it's also like the coordination of all the teams together. This is, in this case, it's really, you know, the show in the finest, uh, this idea of, you know, using that jurisdiction, figuring out what everybody's best at, coordinating together. Yes, Mitch is the one who, find, you know, gets the guy that leads the information to preventing the president from getting taken to then inserting himself, saving Anna Riley, and ultimately you know, killing the terrorists at the end. So he's our, you know, overarching hero. But I think in the end, it's like the, the idea of working together, really putting everyone's heads together, having the strategic plan, screwing Baxter and, and doing it like that. All those teams working together, that, that's our hero. Yeah. And we, we talked in the past about what would be the one word on a post-it. I remember Jack Carr said when he writes, he puts that one word on a post-it. And so in his series with Reese, it's, you know, it's been revenge. I think you're onto something where, where in this book, coordination would be that word, right? The winner is not going to be one person making decisions. The winner is going to be coordinating a response in a way that's efficient. The terrorists are obviously coordinated and look how effective or successful they were in some regards through their coordination, but how American government has to coordinate itself has to have all of its different specialized pieces working together in such harmony. So I would say, I would say coordination and harmony is one of the real heroes collaboration. Great question. Great question. So Mike, who do you think is a greater threat to the safety of Americans, a foreign terrorist or like sort of follow up? Who's the villain? Who's the greater threat to the safety of Americans, a foreign terrorist or a corrupt politician? I mean, it's kind of the same thing where, they obviously both are, but one could make the other one worse, right? Right. The terrorist in these times of stress can make the politician's worst side come out. President Baxter and Dallas King, obviously their worst sides come out. Even think of Piper, you know, the terrorist who wants to play the role of some rich prince of Oman who wants to go to the DNC and offer them whatever it was, I think half a million dollar donation. Right. You know, that terrorist is just going to bring out the worst of what is already fallen about the corrupt political system that we have. And then similarly, the indecision. I mean, this book is really about indecision, about making the wrong, not only the wrong decision, but making the wrong decision in the wrong amount of time. That is going to play into the hand of the terrorists who have the time to draw this thing out, to run a guerrilla warfare and war of attrition. You know, just look at Afghanistan and how long we've been there and just this waiting game of, how many more deaths? How many more suicide attacks? How many more? How much longer can you be here? There's going to be a surge some years, pull out of troops other years. 
but they're in it for the long game because it's their land. So I think one makes the other worse. Right. Just to wrap up this section here, um, you know, we have in this, in this story really this divide between politicians and the military. So what, in a time of crisis, what sort of assets and you know, liabilities can, do you, can you see each side bringing to the game? For me, I, I really think that, you know, politicians like to think bigger picture. So in the sense that the military has this very precise set of, of we want to get this guy. We have these, um, you know, these commands and steps, how we're going to get to that. We have, they have a chain of command, obviously. Whereas, you know, some of the times the politicians can think, I guess in the CIA, in the same sense can think of sort of this, um, I don't know, third dimension and how things are going to play on the political scheme. I think that can be a little bit of, of an asset in terms of liabilities. Um, you know, the, the politicians could be wrought with liabilities. They, they could be corrupt. They can be thinking only about themselves, which we see in this, you know, not actually about the good of the people. I think also sometimes the chain of command in the military can be a liability and it's oftentimes, especially within these novels, that we see Mitch Rapp get frustrated with that and, and why he acts the way he acts because he just he's in a situation where he can do it. I'm going to do it. So, yeah, what, what would you say? I think your last point is spot on where big liability can be the red tape and the bureaucratic process, even within the military structure, who is often you know held up rightfully so as the hero of a lot of these novels. And that's, again, where Stansfield comes in, right? Because Stansfield can cut through that and see when it's right to ignore those protocols, when it's right to go around them. Stansfield provides this nice example where he can sort of, he does a good job. And I think Irene Kennedy in the future does a good job in playing both sides of the game where we have this regimen, we have to abide by these rules, but then we have our, our secret agent man, uh, our you know highly trained counterterrorism operative in Mitch Rapp and you know we're gonna let them lose sometimes and I, I think that's where they, they play a good good game yeah I think you're right I think it's that's real too where you hear a lot of uh, hot zones of war you have some officers that are very very set in their ways and they're, they're willing to give commands bark orders and expect them to be followed and it is also or more so about listening taking advice from those below you or even those above you or on your level and really using it to make decisions. You know, I, I, I did some research in the past on uh, the My Lai massacre and the horrors of Vietnam. And a lot of it stemmed from poor decision-making by officers on the ground who were being told and did have options to say no, but there was such as narrow mindedness and this narrow focus of my orders, my control. And that structure actually made, made the problem worse and led to innocent civilians being slaughtered. Right. And now we come to the part of the podcast where we talk about our winners and losers, our zero-sum game. And so, Mike, what did you think was the best about Transfer of Power? What, what did you like the best? Well, overall, it was great. I mean, it's, it's hard to pick one thing. I got to say, again, I love this this cat and mouse game. Um, I loved Rafik Aziz and the, the terrorist plan and getting into the thought processes and how that character was developed and the group dynamic among the terrorists was explored. While at the same time, we were given the inside picture of what happens when an event like this happens and you have the director of the CIA 
with the chairman of the joint, joint chiefs and the head of JSOC sitting together, running the top operative, how are those discussions going on? And what happens when that small group has to make decisions behind the current commander in chief, the vice president's back? So I just love those those group dynamics and the discussions of thought processes, both on the terrorist end, but also on our end, getting inside the Pentagon and inside these discussions. What did you like? Uh, I agree. I, I really liked the the first four or five chapters of this book. the The scene where we first meet Rap was great, and the descriptions behind you know his physique, his appearance, and and how he's able to adapt really sets the stage for who we know Mitch Rapp is and who we, who we can be. I really liked getting an insider look into the White House. And, you know, this novel was researched so much that they had to put that little disclaimer at the beginning of the book. And it was cool, like, you know, while a lot of this stuff probably, you know, has been changed or adapted, it was cool to, like, see that we don't often are given this personal view of what the White House is. And I really like that. And to follow up on that, I really enjoyed the scene where, where Mitch is being inserted in all of his actions, you know, being the man on the inside. Those are my favorite parts of the book. You're, you're right. I got to agree with you. Rap moving around the White House, Milt Adams intelligence on the layout of the White House. Super cool. Just hearing and watching him maneuver through the building was spectacular. I agree. So what didn't we like about the book? I mean, you, you heard from me it was the ending. Yeah. I felt it was and I, rushed. I agree with that completely. I wanted to, even if it just a little thing, Jack Warch's plan to break out of the bunker would have been super cool. Or even if not that, just more of a description of what happened when the SEAL team approached the bunker, took right. out the locksmith, actually got the, the explosions. Out. Yeah. Yeah. And then when the explosions went off, I mean, we got so much detail about the White House. I would have loved that detail in my mind, right? Visually to compare to a smoldering White House. Like, what in the Oval Office was still standing? What about, you know, the HMS Resolute, like the desk? Like, Maybe it's just me, like uh, the two Roosevelts in the Roosevelt room, their portraits, like some little, they actually opened talking about the portraits in the Roosevelt room, right? And if it's a Democrat or Republican, they sit under Teddy or FDR. Right, right. I want a closing scene of the White House in that description, but on fire. You know, just, (laughs) uh, it just, that was lacking for me. That's the history teacher in you. Yeah, that's it. That's it. No, but I I agree with you. I, I thought that, I, I do think that it was probably the way, you know, it was obviously the climax. And so everything's fast. And you could tell that the way the chapters are set up, they definitely get shorter as the book goes on to sort of get this cut scene between the different groups and to make it a faster pace. And, and you're reading and you're like, oh, whoa, whoa. And so uh, while I did like that, I, I just felt that. And I'm not disagreeing that I didn't enjoy the climax. It's just I, I would have liked it to be fleshed out a little further. And I definitely agree with, you know, your earlier statements in, in this drawn out Anna Riley being this reporter and, oh, I can't do this because I'm a reporter. And when you're in a situ- hostile situation, I, I don't think realistically, you know, that would have been her, the first thought on her mind, you know, to be like, I'm going to have to report on this. Yep. It might be the first thing on her mind after she gets out. But, uh, you know, as I said, I, I think that was a main tool for setting up foreshadowing for the future. But, yeah, I, I, I didn't care for that. Yeah. And you mentioned the action as well. I agree with the last scene and the climax was really great and exciting, but the opening scene was actually my favorite action of the book. Right. Taking Harut in Iran and watching rap in action with the SEAL team, 
was probably the most vivid description of an action scene and i wish that level of writing was in the white house kind of action which it was for a while but not at the very end not right at the climax i don't know it, it left left something lacking for me yeah to to follow up on that there was a lot of detail in this book but not always with the action part of it i, I guess like a little bit with the when the terrorists get in and it, i'm surprised walking away from this book and an action scene at the white house with terrorists was not the most vivid takeaway picture it was well, instead someone took it away <laughs> someone uh, took it away <laughs> hollywood might uh hollywood ran might have it. taken advantage of that or <laughs> ripped off that idea we have some very strong opinions on those films right later on in the month we will be coming out with our take on the two movies olympus has fallen and white house down but first, we have to get to our final take on the book. So if you were to give it a rating, and we both put term limits at about a B plus or so, B, right. B plus, where are you putting this one? Uh, top five. I'm giving it a nine. I'm giving it an A. I don't think this book is going to fall out of my top five. Uh, rereading it, I enjoyed it more. I appreciated it more. It was just a badass introduction to a badass guy. I really enjoyed this book. There was a big leap in the terms of the writing got a lot better. And I don't know if it's like, you know, better editors, better, he knew, had a better vision. Obviously, you know, now this is now his second novel. He's probably gotten uh, reviews, critiques, whatever. And I just, I, I could, I could, while I was reading it, I could see that sort of transformation to being a better writer. Yeah, I'll agree. This is definitely going to stick in the top five of all the Vince Flynn books and Kyle Mills books. Even I, I might go as low as an A minus, teetering between that that complete A and A minus. Ooh, A minus, uh, teacher, A minus. You know, I got to be harsh. You know, you're the teacher, so you you have to have room for improvement, right? I have to have room for growth. Great book, absolutely loved it. Easily in top five out of all the Mitch Rapp books, but um couple little things here and there that uh that left me hanging right and so we put out on twitter a little twitter poll about the book covers and so my favorite book cover was i, I was torn between f or d the, the physical copy i have is actually f so i don't know maybe i was drawn to that i i do sometimes i i like these book covers that have the the man who's either running or, or looking at something. And actually this is one of the reasons why we don't like the book cover G on our Twitter poll. But both me and you were agreeing that the, the latest book cover of transfer of power was this guy running through a field with uh, what is that? A electric pole power or lines. Te with, power lines. Yeah, and power we're like, lines. what? That, that's not even a scene <laughs> in the book. So get that out of here. I tried thinking when, does Mitch Rapp go to the Great Plains? I don't when, know. When, when is he out on a cornfield? I don't know. Just, where is he? What? But then, right. I mean, so a lot of people were also saying E, which we E was actually pretty darn popular. And I mean, from an artsy design perspective, Vince Flynn in a dark crimson red with a the Capitol Dome and the statue on top and in white right across this crimson red almost silhouetted version of the dome is transfer of power uh, with power in your face. So completely great design. But then I'm thinking the Capitol building. Yeah. Why is it the Capitol building? They never it's go to the Capitol. 
they never go, and Congress is never brought up as no. as playing a role. Unlike the last book. Unlike the last book, that would have been a, an amazing cover for term limits. Yeah, uh, put a little crosshairs on there, and it's it's almost perfect. But for this one with the White House, I, I can't pick any of these that don't have the White House. So E, I wanted to pick it, and actually on Twitter, uh, E and F were by far nice the, the most popular. So I'll give that one to you. However, I have a lot of people with me. We like the classy, the almost retro feel. You got to go with A. Come on. That's that's pretty cool. The original book cover. It, it, we got the original. We have the American flag and a noose is kind of pulling it up as if like unveiling something on a stage. It's pulling the flag as if it's this curtain and revealing a, a burning White House or a burning flag in front of the White House. And I just think it's edgy. I think it I think it pushes boundaries. It's got the White House. It's got the South Lawn where a lot of the story takes place. And this noose around a burning American flag, like that just pushes my buttons. And at the same time, it has this very classic uh, feel. You know, you know, I like the originals, the oldies. Right. One of the one of the comments you said to me offline about my favorite uh, one F, where you have this figure with holding a gun who's looking at the the White House. You, you had a problem with this, and why why was that? Yeah, let me tell you about F. <laughs> Maybe we're spending too much time on the covers, but it's it's a big deal. It's a big deal. That's the north side on Pennsylvania Avenue. And right. I I mean, Lafayette Park, which is up there, was mentioned a few times, I think, just expanding the security perimeter and right. pushing the media back. But I there was never any time any sort of secret agent would have been on the north side, which is where a lot more media presence would be. And Marcus Demond in the van when they go into the White House and find these ducks is completely on the south lawn. So F, it's nice. It's It's a little out of touch for me. Yeah. So long story short, you're telling me is that like, they don't actually think about, you know, a potential the story, scene, the story, the story itself. just let's put something that's fucking cool on there. If, if I could talk to two people, it's whoever picked E and whoever picked G. I'm talking about the Capitol building is the only image on the cover when it has nothing to do with the story or a guy running through a field with yeah. power lines when that is nowhere even remote. Whoever picked G near the uh, story. We need to talk. Yeah, uh, that, that, was, that was fun. Well, by far, uh, E and F were our winners. D had a lot of votes. A and C had a lot of votes by uh, the people who were with me and like that that retro feel. But, D, I like that sort of. It, it sort of is like the opening scene of the book where you have this fog and Kennedy rolls in. We didn't bring up. What's funny is we didn't bring up B. And on Twitter, I don't think anybody mentioned B. Yet B is the one that fits this mold that I think is probably the most well-known, the series of a whole. Right. Where you have the three colors, you know. You have blue at the top, blue at the bottom, and a band of white through the middle uh, with this gold emblem on it. It looks like the presidential seal from here, but um, no one seemed to like that one. And uh, it certainly wasn't my favorite, but that, that seems to be the mold that the, the most recent publications have gone with. So why don't you tell them what we're going to be covering next episode? So next episode, later on in the month, we'll be doing a little movie review. As I mentioned, we are going to talk about the two movies that have, can I say, stolen stolen plot lines. So we'll put it this way. Chris and I are going to have some strong opinions on those two films, but we thought, uh, let's review them. Let's uh, take a look at them in light of Transfer of Power, which is a masterpiece, and those two are certainly not masterpieces. And so... If you want to get ahead and be prepared, try to watch those films. Get ready for our next podcast mid-June. And you know what's occurring to me, Chris? Transfer power, the history teacher in me is itching to do something on the 25th Amendment. 
and the succession clause. So um, I think we're going to have to drop some bonus episode uh, later in June, analyzing uh, how the 25th Amendment was handled in this book. Sounds good. All right. And please, as always, subscribe, rate, and review us using your favorite podcasting platform. You're going to find us online at mitrabpod.com or using our Twitter handle at mitrabpod. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Guys, we, we're just simply two fans offering a discussion and reviews of some of our favorite books and characters. This podcast is not officially affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster. But thank you to them for bringing us this wonderful world of Mitch Rapp.